you are creating a beautiful garden with native plants. So you go to a nursery and buy a few plants. But a few days later, you find out that some of these were not native at all. They are actually indigenous to an entirely different part of the world. So how do you avoid this confusion in future? And where do you find these plants that are truly native to your region? Also, is it okay to get plants from wild? Is it the right thing to do? Is it even legal? I'm sharing all this information in today's episode and I'll tell you some interesting ways to learn more about native plants and how to avoid accidentally getting invasive plants in your garden. Welcome to another episode of Garden and Nature Southwest. I'm Vani Shukla. I've been gardening in Desert Southwest for 18 years. I am passionate about growing native plants, learning from nature and supporting wildlife. So let's start to learn some more. I'm glad that native plants are becoming more popular these days, but still there's quite a bit of confusion when you're trying to accurately identify a plant or when you're trying to buy a specific plant or many times you may end up buying the wrong plant and occasionally even invasive plant. I think there are a few reasons for this kind of confusion. And one of the reasons is that there is a big focus on drought tolerance, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that we are focusing on water conservation. But when we talk about drought tolerance, that's a very non-specific term. If it is a plant that originated in a desert in Africa, Asia, or other places around the world, and it is used to the harsh climate, the lack of rain, the hot temperatures in those areas, then it might fit very well in our desert southwest climate as well. So that is all what drought tolerance means. Now, when we are looking for native plants, we want that additional information. Sure, it is a drought tolerant plant, but is it also native to our area? And that additional information is often what's lacking. And another reason for confusion, and this is, I think, the biggest reason for confusion, is the name of the plant. Often the plants sold in retail locations are just identified by their first name. By first name, I mean the name of the genus, the genus of the plant, or the larger group that the plant belongs to. Let me give you an example of a plant, verbena. Let's say a friend or a website suggests to you, verbena is a native plant with beautiful purple flowers. And so you go to a nursery and you find this verbena, which is called purple top verbena. Now, if that's the only information that we have about the plant that we are going to buy, then this purple top verbena we're buying is actually a native of South America from the tropical areas. And it is quite popular in our nurseries because it has beautiful purple flowers. It looks amazing in landscapes. But in some areas, it is escaping into the wild. It has potential to become invasive. And some of the regions in the United States are actually calling it invasive. I have another example of something I did many years ago when I was first learning about native plants. I got a paper flower. I read on a website the scientific name of a plant, but it was too difficult to remember, so I remembered the common name, paper flower. And one day I found paper flower in my nursery. So I was very happy that I found this native plant. I got the plant home and started looking into more depth about this plant. So when I googled paper flower, what came up was the image of the plant that I had bought, exactly the same plant. It mentioned that it's a native of Australia. That was confusing. I was pretty sure that I read that paper flowers were Chihuahuan desert natives. 
So I went back, looked for the document, and of course, the scientific name was completely different. The one that was Chihuahuan Desert native was Celastra of Tajatina. I'm not 100% how this name would be actually pronounced in the scientific community, but that's the best guess I have for the pronunciation. But Celastra of Tajatina was the name of the paper flower that belonged to Chihuahuan Desert. It was an entirely different paper flower that I got that was an Australian native. So this was another example of how common names can create that confusion. And we might end up buying a plant that we were not intending to buy. Now, I do have a lot of non-native plants in my garden. I have tropical plants, and especially the edible garden. Fruits and the vegetables mostly are non-natives. Among the ornamental plants, I would say more than 90% are native plants. So whether you're growing tropicals, exotic plants, or native plants, what is more important, I think, for all of us gardeners is to know what exactly are we growing in our gardens. If we are wanting to grow a native plant, then we should be able to find a truly native plant. Now, how do you actually learn about these native plants? How do you get to know what is native to your area, what is not? We don't want to make it boring. We just don't want to be sitting with computers and books to learn about native plants. So I find that one of the most interesting ways to learn about native plants is to actually go out in nature. Take pictures with your cell phone and put these pictures in apps such as iNaturalist and identify these plants. You might get curious now to look into more depth, see what it is about, what kind of butterflies it attracts. But the key is to be out in the nature. Some of the best places would be going to a state park or a national park if you have nearby access to those areas. Or in many cities, the university campuses are also having demonstration gardens and research gardens, which are sometimes open to public. So these might be really nice places to learn because very often these demonstration gardens and research centers would have plants very nicely labeled. Take a lot of photographs and keep visiting multiple times if this place is not far away from where you live. If you have a good botanical garden in your city, that would be another place to learn. So once you have that association in your mind about how a plant is linked to the wildlife around it, to the soil microbes, to the history of the region, to maybe the human population in that area, how that plant was used for medicinal purposes or, for, uh, for, or as a food source. And when you have all those associations built in your mind with that plant, you always remember it. And then when you start to think in those terms, then you start to get curious about what is native, very specifically native to your local area, to the region that you're living in. If you're living near a river, then the river habitat for a plant may be very different than a mountain area in the same city. And then in turn, those plants make you curious about the wildlife that evolved with them. And so you start to learn about the wildlife. So it's a never-ending thing, but ever so interesting. Some of the other places where you can get reliable knowledge and information about native plants would be native plant societies. They often have good websites where you can find list of plants and description of these plants for the area that you're interested in. I also love the university-associated websites because they are also very reliable source of information. 
Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center is another good website to look at. And I will leave the links and the website information in the show notes or the episode description. So now you have that knowledge and interest in growing very locally native plants, but there's often a hurdle, and that is difficulty finding the plants, the specific plants. Many of the species have a very wide range, extend from all the way from Chuabun Desert to Mojave Desert, Sonoran Desert, everywhere. And so those are easier to find. But then there are these other plants that have a more limited range, and those are the ones that are very difficult to find. If we are growing plants that belong to a wider range and also growing plants that are that are limited to our specific area, then we are promoting that diversity of plants. So how and where do I find those plants? I have been able to come across some valuable resources. And you may not find all of these resources helpful for your area, but you might look for similar things in your local area. One of the best resources that I found was the local nurseries. I'm talking about very small establishment, usually started by just one or two people, people that have quite a bit of interest and passion about supporting the local flora. And they started the nursery business for this particular reason, that it is so difficult to find selected varieties, selected species from the wholesale nursery. It took me a few years before I would come across these very small local nurseries, and they were just amazing because they carried exactly what I was looking for. Not all the plants, of course, but many of the plants that I was looking for, exactly the varieties that grow in my area. So this is something that you may want to do. And again, how you do it, again, it's very difficult. Many of these small nurseries do not have a website. But now one of the things that is different from the past is even if these nurseries cannot maintain a website, they often have a Facebook page. So that's the local. But there are some other larger places where you can find very local plants, plants that are otherwise difficult to find. And sometimes it's seeds. Sometimes you may not find a plant, but you may need, you may want to get the seed and try to grow it yourself. So that is another way. So these companies that have either the seeds or the plants that are difficult to find elsewhere in the wholesale nurseries or other retail, other big retail establishments, a few that I want to mention, one is the borderland restoration. And again, I will leave the links in the episode description or the show notes. But this organization sells the seeds that originate from southeastern Arizona. And their mission is the restoration of the borderland areas where a lot of plants and ecosystems have been lost. There's another site that I have found useful. It is called Native American Seed. And I have used that and they are prompt in sending the seeds. This website is Native American Seeds, but their website address is called seedsource.com. Now, is it okay to collect plants and seeds from the wild? Well, there are two parts to this question. One is legal, and the other part is, is it the right thing to do? It may be legal, but is it okay? So the first part, the legal part, is pretty straightforward. Most of the national parks, state parks, or wildlife preserves usually would have their websites that would clearly state what their laws are regarding removal of any plant material. And in general, most of these places do not allow removal of plant material of any kind. There are a few exceptions, but they would state these exceptions on their website. And even with these exceptions, a lot of times you have to take the permit. But again, all those specific things will be stated in their website. 
Now, how about other wild areas that are not in the boundaries of these preserves or parks? In those wild areas also, it is different from state to state, from region to region. Some states are okay, as long as it's not in the endangered list. But other states are more strict, and you cannot remove native plants from any wild area. And again, that kind of information will be available on particular state or region that you're looking for. Now, the second part of the question. Is it a right thing to do? We know that these plants are being lost in the wild, the wild spaces are being lost, and especially the locally native species that are unique to an area are even more threatened. So we want to support their population. But if we remove a plant from the wild, then we are doing just the opposite. Because that plant is surviving in the wild, and when we try to move it to our garden, it may not make it. Even if it appears to us that the plant is struggling, and we might be doing it a favor, but we are not. Because that struggling plant has a better chance of bouncing back to life after two minutes of rain in the wild than the chance it has in our garden. These plants often have a very deep taproot and they don't like to be transplanted. So it's best to leave them in the wild where they are. When it comes to seeds, it may seem like it's not a problem. But if you think about it a bit more deeply, that if many of us went out in the wild and collected those seeds, then we are lowering the number of next generation of these plants in that wild space. One may argue that, well, we are just bringing those seeds here. We are not losing that generation of plants. We are just bringing those in our garden, growing them in the garden. But it's not that simple either. Because many of the times these seeds are quite finicky and they sprout only when they're exposed to particular conditions. We think we might be providing them optimum conditions, but a lot of these specific situations are not even known to us. So if there's a space in the wild where these plants are growing, where they are seeding, we know that there's some optimum condition for them in that place. But we're not sure if we're going to have that same condition provided to them in our garden space, or even if you're doing it in a controlled setting. Again, sometimes they require even a year of being in the soil, exposed to the harsh elements, exposed to the cold and the drought, and then they sprout. So we may not have exact same situations, even in a very controlled setting. Now, there may be one exception to that that may be reasonable. And that exception is for the local nurseries and the local organizations who are trying to restore the lost habitats. And I think it's reasonable for them because first, they do work with biologists who take a survey of the land, they have a population count, they will have a very good idea about if they remove a particular number of plants or a particular amount of seeds, that it will not be adversely affecting that wild space from which they're collecting. So they have made that evaluation prior to collection. The second thing is that if each of us individually went out and just randomly collected plants or seeds, then it will be a much, much larger number that we'll be just collecting without any idea of how much loss we are causing to that wild area. But if one organization or one or two local nurseries that are doing it after complete evaluation, then that would be a fewer number of plants or seeds removed. And then these plants will be multiplied by these organizations or the local nurseries, multiplied into a lot more plants. And then if they have enough to sell to the public, I think that is a much better way to obtain these seeds or plants through these nurseries or through these organizations. 
Now, how about collecting from lands which are future construction sites or empty lots where a house might be built in near future? How about collecting from those areas? So in any kind of private land, we need permission. Otherwise, we'll be trespassing. And um, in some cases, it may not be difficult to get permission because let's say if, if it's an empty lot and there's a real estate agency board, you might just call the realtor and see if they will check with the owner if it's okay to pick up a few plants. And you probably also want to describe what you're going to be doing. You don't want to be digging big plants and, and leaving a ditch in that land. You don't want to be disturbing the land in any way. But if it's a tiny plant, nobody will mind giving you that permission. Another place much easier to get permission for would be those sidewalk strips. Some of them at times are neglected and uh, we see a lot of weeds growing. And if you just happen to spot a little native plant growing among the weeds, then just ring the bell, ask the homeowner if it's okay for you to pick that one plant among the weeds and let them know you'll make sure you won't be disturbing any of the land or sprinkler system or anything else that might be there. And again, after making sure that they do not want that plant themselves. Another place where you can find native plants that is definitely not to be overlooked is your own yard. And the plants, the native plants that volunteer or grow by themselves in our own property are more easy to miss sometimes because we are often pulling out weeds. And some of these native plants may have the appearance very similar to the weeds, to some of the invasive plants. Especially when they're young, especially when they have only a couple of leaves, it might be difficult to distinguish. And I learned it firsthand. I spotted a plant just next door to my house in an empty lot a few years back. The leaves were hardly noticeable, just the usual looking weed-like leaves, nothing special. But the flower was absolutely beautiful. It was shaped like a pitcher. It was bright purple. It was just a beautiful shape, and I had not seen that in the wild in my desert landscape. And when I identified that plant, that was a jewel plant, or a jewel flower. Again, that's a common name. The scientific name was Streptanthus carinatus. I will write the name in the episode description. But that, I found out, is not a very common plant. It is a rare native plant, a Chihuahuan desert plant. And I was excited to see it, but at the same time, I realized that had it not had the flower on it, I may have never recognized it as a rare plant, a rare native plant. I would have taken it just for a weed. And it's quite possible I might have pulled out a jewel plant or two from my own property before I learned about this plant. So from then on, every time I am pulling out a plant, I absolutely make sure and confirm what kind of plant that is before I pull it out. So this is just an example to emphasize that occasionally some rare native plant whose seed may be lying dormant in your yard for a few years suddenly decides to grow when it, when it gets the right kind of conditions for whatever reason. And unless we are closely observing with curious eyes, we might just pull it out thinking it's a weed. Now when talking about pulling out weeds, one of the important things we want to know always is whatever plant we grow in our garden, whether it's native or non-native, is it invasive or not? A plant that is native to one end of the United States may be invasive in the other end. Now, where do you find that information? One of the websites to go and check that would be Invasive Plant Atlas of United States. And here you can find 
all sorts of information of, about the plants that are listed as um, invasive for United States. The other websites that I think can be more helpful for your local area would be to visit the sites that are associated with the state park or the national park websites in your area. And they are often providing information on invasive species because they are dealing with these problems in the state parks and the national parks also. So they are very reliable resources. Other sites could be the Native Plant Society might have a page that is listing invasive plants. Now, some of the websites that may actually increase the confusion between what is what is invasive or a weed or what is a native plant would be, let's say, the cattle management or ranch management websites or agricultural websites. Because often what is considered as weed or toxic for the purposes of agriculture may not be necessarily invasive. They might be actually native plants. And one of the biggest examples would be milkweed. Many, many species of native milkweed are so essential for the monarch preservation. However, from the agricultural standpoint, these are not the kind of plants they want in their land, as it can be toxic to the cattle and the animals they have in their farms. Now, there's so many topics and so much to talk about when it comes to native plants or around creating wildlife habitats, and I would love to share with you in future episodes. But for today, I will end it here. Thank you for listening and happy gardening.